Hi, this is Joe Satriani, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. Yo, this is Wolf Hoffman from Accept, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. Hi, this is Wild Mick Brown, and uh, I'm the drummer for Doc and Ted Nugent, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. Hey, Headbangers, this is Rudy Sarzo, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. Hello and welcome to episode 84 of the Iron City Rocks podcast. I'm your host, John. The Iron City Rocks podcast is a vodcast devoted to promoting Pittsburgh's rock, hard rock, heavy metal, and blues music scene. Episode 84, we're drawing to a close in the year 2010. And I was going through some of the vault to some of the interviews I've done over the last uh, month or so and wanted to get them out there, uh, even though they may not technically pertain to Pittsburgh, especially this time of year when there aren't a lot of bands on the road. So it's kind of a treat. Uh, we've got a couple of uh, the 80s biggest hard rock acts coming on the show today. First up, we're going to feature Wild Mick Brown. Uh, Wild Mick was in uh, Pittsburgh earlier this summer playing drums with Ted Nugent. He is also one of the two founding members still in the band Dokken, who uh, were uh, pretty huge uh, in the hair metal genre of the late 80s. So we're going to play a little bit of Dawkins, probably one of their biggest uh, hits in my dreams, then we're going to get an interview with uh, Mick. It's a relatively long interview, but uh, Mick is an incredibly charismatic guy, so I think you'll you'll like it. Not after night, don't know what it means in my dreams. What can I say? Ladies and gentlemen, with great pleasure, I welcome to the show Wild Mick Brown. Mick, how are you doing today? Fine, John. How are you? I am doing great. Hey, I wanted to uh, take some time to catch up with you. I know uh, a lot of the, your uh, gigs are kind of uh, taking a little break for hunting season and things like that, so uh, I wanted to... <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, in, Ted's, in Ted Nugent's world, uh, he, you know, he splits it all up. I mean, the guy's, you got to remember, the guy's not as young as he used to be, and... You know, he's had a full career of nothing but playing music, and then, uh, you know, he, since I've been with the band, you know, he said, listen, I've, I've got my life down into, you know, sections. I, I do a section, a summer section of touring with the band, and I do a, a section of hunting, I do a section of traveling and do book signing and political things, and the other section he does with uh, quality family time. Okay. So, you know, he's got that schedule going on, you know, pretty much all the time now. Excellent. So I, I wanted to talk, I mean, I have to admit, I have been a fan of yours since, uh, really since under lock and key. I remember, uh, getting engrossed uh, with the band. The Dawkins, the Dawkins uh, <laughs> very, very much. Um, I kind of wanted to back up on, on how you got started. I had read, uh, on one of the uh, drum products that you endorsed that you actually had a drum lesson with Mickey Hart early on. Is that true? Yes. Uh, when I was on my eighth uh, birthday, when I turned eight years old, my parents took me, uh, I wanted to be a drummer and, uh, shortly after seeing the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, you know, and uh, they took me down to a place. Uh, and his, uh, Mickey Hart and his father, uh, George Hart, uh, had a shop and uh, you know, music store, but pretty much drums. 
And I started taking lessons. I did that for about two years, and then he went and joined the Grateful Dead, and I never saw him after that. <laughs> Literally came to the store. Was my dad took me down there, and we walked up, and there was a sign on the door that said "Going Grateful Dead closed." You know, closed no further notice, and that was that. <laughs> That had to be kind of a cool, cool little story to tell your friends. I also found out later that uh, Mickey's dad managed the Grateful Dead for a short time, flew down to Los Angeles to uh, pick up the next recording funds, which were like, I think I talked to the guy who actually gave him the money and said it was $100,000, which was quite a bit back then. Uh, he got the money. Uh, instead of flying back to San Francisco, which uh, where, they, where they were from, uh, he took off and they, they, they took him six months to catch up with him and he yeah. spent most of the money. Yeah, I can't imagine <laughs> on what. Imagine your father doing something like that, but my God. Yeah. You know, and, and still leaving Mickey in the band. <laughs> I thought that was really a great story. Crazy time. Now, did you grow up in the LA area? I... Uh, no, um, Northern California, pretty much, uh, south of San Francisco. Okay. Uh, up until around. 10, 11 years old. Then I went to uh, Northern California, in the sa- a little bit north of Sacramento area. Okay. And uh, then I met George Lynch uh, from the uh, Bakken band. Um, he was up there, I think we were 16, 17 when I met him. Okay. And uh, he was from Los Angeles, and I was pretty serious about, you know, really chased, you know, I really wanted to find out how to do this, you know, and get a, become a rock star, you know. Yeah. So he moved back to L.A. and started writing me letters saying, listen, you know, if you're really serious, this is the place where you guys do it. So, I mean, I literally just I had nothing, and I just went down there and had nothing for a long time. And <laughs> yeah. Learned, uh, learned to go to these clubs in Hollywood where all these people were. I mean, I was just amazed that you could walk into a, a nightclub and see your favorite rock star sitting around, you know. I thought, oh, my God, I, this has been here, you know. like, And, uh you know, from there on, we just started meeting people, and and uh, it took it took quite a while, but um, you know, things did eventually get going. Yeah, I mean, you guys. As soon as I, as soon as I made enough money, I moved. Yeah. <laughs> I <didn't stand> Los <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's pretty rough down there when you didn't have any money, you know. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, now you, oh, that, was, you, that was some fun times. You we kind of met up with with George and even Don Dawkin, for those who are not familiar, kind of in that same period of time, right? Kind of late high school years. Uh, well, let's see. Actually, I met George. We met, George and I didn't hook up with Don until 1980. Okay. And, uh, I mean, he was around the L.A. scene in another band, but we didn't pay any attention, and we really didn't see much of him, you know, here and there, but not much. And then in 80, he approached us and said, uh, you know, that he had actually taken some of our songs to Germany <laughs> and, yeah. and done a record. So sort of hooked us in by... You know, by force. <laughs> I looked over at George and listen, this guy took our songs. He's on the phone from Germany. And he's recording them, you know, and he wants us to play. And I thought, well, if he's already got it all going, let's let's go with it, you know. Yeah, so I can't. We just we hooked up at that point. And I think I, that's what, where a lot of animosity started right there. When yeah, yeah. <laughs> day, took the songs. <laughs> day one, you know, trouble in Dawkins world. Yeah. That's oh, not, day, day one, exactly. Day yeah, one. that's not exactly news. Um, there. But you guys, um, you you've obviously you've been with Dokken really since its inception. Um, did, yeah. Was Germany kind of? I did still you guys, am in Dokken. <laughs> yeah. Did did Dokken kind of break in Germany more? I know Don had gone there and well, you yeah. I mean, used we, with we the went, Scorpions. You know, after right after the Van Halen uh, thing came out in Los Angeles, you know, we were you know the similar type setup, you know, singer with three piece and a bunch of players, you know, and uh, 
after that, we just couldn't get, you know, any record company to look at us anymore. They were just like, oh, you know, we got Van Halen did that. You know, it's, it's, they're doing that. So we're looking for something different. And they had, <clears throat> uh, Don had befriended uh, Dieter Dirks, who was Scorpion's manager at the time, mm-hmm. and, and produced all their records. And he got in through them, and uh, Dieter said, well, listen, I'll, I can get you a deal in Europe. And he goes, it won't be a, a big deal, but it'll be something, you know, you know, it's a start. And that's literally what it was. We did a, um, our first record over in Germany and brought that back in 80, I think it was late 81 or 82. I think it was late 81, back to the United States, or 82, maybe early 82. And uh, took that record and, and you know, got Electra Records. Um, you know, said, so listen, we have this band and, <laughs> and this record's done. And they said, well, great, we just want to change a couple things on the record, maybe do a remix on a couple songs or something, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was a stepping stone to getting the Electra record years, you know. Okay, and Electra picked which, you which up. I was hoping that it, exactly that that would happen, you know, and it, it was great. Yeah, no, they they picked you up right right with Breaking the Chains? Was that, that They a, did, right. Okay. And then so obviously... Yeah. What? I'm sorry, Tooth and Nail then really kind of uh, more or less broke the door. I mean, kind of made yeah, you guys... Well, well, too, because our management, uh, uh, MTV was pretty new, and he got us, uh, you know, the video thing started happening. Yeah. MTV videos. So, you know, that song got on the, on, uh, actually, break, the song Breaking the Chains did real well on radio and, and well in the uh, uh, video market there with uh, on MTV. But to the nail, you know, I mean, things just, you know, it always takes a year and a half or so to, for the everything to catch up with you. Right. So, yeah, by the time Tooth and Nail came out, things were really popping, you know. And yeah. And, you know, at that point, we were doing three, those days we would do three uh, videos or singles per record at least, you know. <laughs> Isn't that something to think about that? Now, yeah. now some bands are number 20 on the charts and can't get on the radio. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's, it's funny even now how many bands end up having to start with EPs just because, you know, the record companies don't want to take a chance on doing a whole album. Well, yeah, and, you know, I mean, it's yeah. It's, I, I listen. I'm probably way out of touch, or I don't know. I, I mean, it just doesn't. There's just no rules anymore. And I don't know about record companies. You know, I mean, if you need them or not. You know, um, since the internet opened up the doors, you know, things yeah. really, really changed. And uh, we were talking about it the other day, and someone said, you know, in the '60s, we were talking about in the '60s, there was maybe 30 rock bands, maybe that had to compete with each other per year, you know, that were out in one year, yeah. you know, maybe that many. And then, like, when Dawkins came out the first year, 700 records that year got released. And then the next following year, 17,000 records got out. And the following year, 170,000, you know. So, I mean, this was, you know, for not, it was like climbing at rapid rate, you know. Yeah. So we were pretty lucky just to even get in the door, you know. Yeah, I mean, you guys, uh, I don't know, did it, did it really kind of bust wide open for, uh, when did you guys feel it during Under Lock and Cure was back for the attack, well, really, I, when I it got? I, no, I, I mean, the day, the second you were on MTV and things, I mean, right, I've never seen anything like it. It changed your life instantly. Uh, you know, we were just, we still didn't have any money at that point. You know, George and I were living together, his girlfriend, him, me, uh, we had a house in Anaheim, I think, or, and, uh, um, I mean, the second that that thing was on TV, you know, everyone, every kid in the world was watching that. And, I mean, all of a sudden, man, we, you know, they knew where we lived, <laughs> you know, yeah. and it was like, oh my God. 
and you couldn't go to the mall. You couldn't do it. I mean, it was nuts. It was insane. And I thought, oh, my God. And our manager said, watch out, man, because the second this thing starts moving, you're going to be famous, like, literally overnight. Yeah. And it did. And it just got worse and worse to the point, you know, where we had to, you know, start looking for cover and stuff. And it was it was out of control. I mean, how how powerful that that, that, that tool was, that MTV tool. Yeah. And, you know, I got to say, uh, God bless them for all, you know, all that he did. Because uh, back then, even the rotation was small. I mean, it was just enough stuff where we could be on every 40, 42 minutes, you know. And our manager told us, he goes, you're going to be on that much. You know, it's just going to rotate. You're going to be on every 42 minutes. And for a long time, that went on like that, you know. But the second, um, the second, uh, you know, uh, after Doc and uh, split up and this Lynch Mob band came out, we, we did a couple then. And the second that that uh, 90s kind of grunge thing came in, I mean, they just moved us aside and – you were, I mean, you were done. You know, you're fast, I think. You know, it was just the opposite. Like, wow, you're, you know, I never heard of you. Yeah, I, re- <laughs> I was I re- like, wow, this right, you know, you're only something when you're on that tube, you know. Yeah, it's, it was it's, amazing to me. How dominating that thing is. It came crashing down quick there at the end, and it was a shame. It, it did. I mean, I'm just saying, I just can't believe that. Bam! That's the second you're off that team, you are, you are done. You know, yeah. and. uh it was really something. Yeah, I mean, it was unfortunate that no one saw it coming as fast as it did, or at least as a fan, I know well, I did. It's unfortunate that it still can't go. It be, you know, why can't there be? I mean, there's, I guess, I, I don't know why, but I mean, there's tons of channels on TV that I'm sure that they could have, you know, there's still room to have a, just a rock channel, a vest channel, a jazz channel, a blues channel. You know what I'm saying? Just like the ones that are in the end of your direct TV, you know, yeah. thing. That, why can't you have that visually, you know? I mean, yeah. Uh, I yeah. just, it's, you know, it seems like that you could. I mean, you know, there are a couple of channels still playing this stuff, but God, I mean, it, it seems like they need a lot more channels to cover it all, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing about Dawkin, especially, I have to give you guys all the credit in the world, is that you seem to really embrace the videos. You had great videos in your long-form video. To this day, I still have to enjoy watching that when you guys are... Well, you know, our manager had a lot to do with that. He was very tied into... uh Cliff Bernstein and Peter Mitch, they were called Q-Prime. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cliff Bernstein pretty much discovered Rush, uh, ACDC, and they used to work as a team with Lieber Krebs, which is part of Scorpions. So the guys have been in the business a long time. I didn't, we had no idea that they were the most powerful management on the planet, and we, we didn't know because we were brand new and young, and we just didn't know who was who. Right. And, you know, everything he said, he said, listen, uh, uh, you know, in fact, Dawkins had the very first uh, – Compil- he he invented the compilation video, uh, taking all your videos and and we he gave us cameras, and on our European tour said just film yourselves doing anything you know and it, one of them had sound, and then it, they compiled all this and threw these little inserts in, and it went it sold gold immediately. He said, I, man, he goes you're the very first thing, want people to have a gold video. And uh, he said, I wish I would have known that this was going to be this, you know, because I didn't know how powerful this video stuff was going to be. He goes, I wish I would have known I would have made you a better deal. But he goes, it was brand new, and they were all scratching their head looking at me, you know, like, what's this guy talking about? But, I mean, at that point, you know, from that point on, everybody had one, you know, and he created it. It was fantastic. I I I felt really proud to, you know, be part of that. Yeah, I have to say, yours, yours, and it was a lot of fun too. To yeah, that. yours, yours kind of oozed the fun. I mean, when you had Jeff and George in the hotel with the, the playing with the guitar yeah, case you know, and things like that, came off the hoof, you know, because Jeff's like that. And I, you know, I said, 
did you, did you do that? He goes, well, you know, the camera guys were there, and we were recording, and that got boring. So, you know, I, I, we had a free moment, and I just picked up the mic and started talking. Jeff, you know, doing his, his interview with George acting so silly. I said, oh, yeah. this, is, this is phenomenal. And so I remember Motley Crue went to uh, the same people who filmed a lot of our videos and said, we want to be funny like Doc. And they yeah. well, Doc is just they're just funny. And he goes, so they, they go, well, we'll try and write some scripts that like that for you. He goes, but it did, they goes, you know, although people are paying much more attention to them, they did, they weren't uh, nearly as, as naturally funny. Yeah. I mean, our band was the best, man, and it was funny. Yeah. I'm telling you, it was a real good time. Yeah, and obviously, I, I don't want to get bogged down in the soap opera of, of the drama of reunions and things like that. I mean, Doc, and at, to, for today, Doc, and it is yourself and Don, and you've got... Uh, You've got uh, John, uh, John Levin. Levin. Band, I think almost six, seven years. Oh, no, wait. God, I think it's almost eight years. And uh, right now, Sean McNabb is the bass player. Um, you know, recently, they were talking about a dog and Rian, and all four members met at this party in uh, up by Magic Mountain. I don't know that area, what it's called. Mm-hmm. San, I guess I'm going to say Santa Barbara. I don't know. And uh, we thought, you know, I thought, well, okay, let's, I'm keeping an open mind here. I didn't really know what to think about this. And uh, there's a big promoter, a European promoter, and he was at the party, throwing the party. And he said, you know, I want to put you guys back there, and I'm going to give you this gigs and do Japan. And it really turned out to be the same gigs, kind of. It wasn't anything special and not, any, yeah. not much more money. So we all just kind of left the party like, oh, well, okay. You know, <laughs> we didn't know what to think, you know. So I don't know if ever anyone's going to follow through on that, but uh, yeah. I might. I'm considering touring with George Lynch with the Lynch Mob, oh, okay. uh, just to do 17 shows in the first part of the year. He just emailed me yesterday oh. and offered me these things with the original singer Oni Logan, yeah, and the bass player from Rat, uh, Robbie Crane. Oh, great! So the four of us might go out and play. You know, and that's, he's been dying to play with me for a long time, and I've just been busy with Don and, and the other things. So now I have some time. I thought, why not? You know, I played on those those records. I think it'd be fun sure. to go out and play. Yeah, play we had again, so we had I the play pleasure of talking to Oni and we're glad to hear that uh, he's going to be coming back. I know there was a bit of a, a family issue and he had to take time away. But that's, I mean, uh-huh. it's great. I saw it. that band. Uh, Dokken played in Japan at a real big festival called uh, La- Loud Park. Park. Yeah. And uh, Lynch Mob also played in a, in a kind of a smaller venue inside the building that we were old bands playing in. And we were able to run over there, catch them going on stage, and then run back and do our set. And then George joined us on stage for one song. So, but they were really good, and I was really great, great to see Oni uh, doing so well with it. And yeah. uh, I thought it was wonderful. Yeah, their new album uh, is very, very good. I have to admit. Uh, you, oh you... my God! In fact, I think that's one of the best things that George has ever ever created. I went, you know, of all your, you know, that's a real fine product, and and you know, he sounds good on it. Someone really took the time to get it right with them and stuff, and I, I was, I told them, I go, it's great, it's just, I go, it's, it's great, it's just for an ADD guy like myself, like, I can't listen to that many songs, yeah. <laughs> there's like 16 songs on here, so, you know, they're all really good, I was really impressed with it. So, let me ask you this, how did you, how did you get on Ted Nugent's radar? Uh, Barry Sparks was the bass player in uh, Dokken for quite a while, mm-hmm. uh, he got hooked in with Ted Nugent somehow, they needed the bass player, and Barry's always done well, with uh, playing with lots of different people, so I don't know. He had that knack of getting in there. So he was playing with Ted for a, a while, and I was getting kind of sour. I was like, ah, you know, we're not playing up in docking, and I need to make more money. And mm-hmm. he goes, well, you know, Ted's looking to maybe soon. He's talking about getting a new drummer. 
so I put your name in the hat, and I said, well, please, you know, and he did, and then um, that's basically how I got hooked up, and so uh, Barry and I and Ted played for, I think, a couple tours, at least, three, two, maybe three, mm-hmm. and then Barry went on, and I brought in uh, Greg Smith, Okay. who's currently the member, and, and I've been in, I didn't know it, but this last summer we were uh, in the dressing room somewhere, and Toby and Ted were standing there, Toby's uh, Ted's son, and looks at Carbon copy of Ted, only thirty-three <laughs> years old. And so, like when Ted was thirty-three, and so he looked over at me and goes, "You know, Mick, I think you're the longest member other than Ted." And, and then Ted knew the name. I was like, "What?" Wow. I go, "He's been around for six decades." Yeah. <laughs> and they go, "No, but." And then Ted looked over and goes, "You know what? I think you're right." He goes, "I I used to just get rid." Of, he goes, "You've done more tours than anybody." And he goes, "We they only used to do a couple, maybe one or two tours, and then I get a new guy." And, uh, you know, I've done like six tours already with him now, and I'm getting ready to do my seventh here coming up, you know? Wow. And uh, I thought, oh, my God, I'm second in line under Ted. <laughs> it really hit me funny. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah, I would never – I mean, when you think about it, though, when you think of Ted News, you know, other than Derek St. Holmes, I don't necessarily think of, okay, who is in his band necessarily. I mean, I recognize your name straight off the bat because I've been a Dawkins fan since, you know, 1986 or something like that. But, you know, I don't necessarily equate – anybody else being on stage but Ted. But, uh, you know. You know, even when I run into some of the other guys that used to play with Carmine Apathy, he was played mm-hmm. for a short time. Yeah. Uh, Tony Aldridge, uh, uh, Charlie Hoon, the singer. Uh, when I, when I, uh, when I talked to them, it always seems, you know, they go, they'd always give me this, well, you've been in there quite a while now, right? And I'm like, yeah, I've been in, you know, this and they always get that look like, kind of, you know, like, you son of a fellow, and so, you know, how did you remain, get to remain in there when, you know, and I'm like, I remember one time he told me, uh, Charlie said, well, don't get used to it because Ted usually saves his members right about now. I'm like, oh, God, don't tell me that, you know. <laughs> yeah, you're like a college football coach. You're just, your days are numbered no matter what you do. <laughs> well, the- listen, you know, I mean, even if that happened, I couldn't be more lucky to have played with that man. I'm telling you, yeah. he is quite a his music i adore he's he's only he's better than he's ever been uh, most guys get to a point where they peak uh in age and mm. and they just don't have it anymore or they lose a lot of it you know yeah and he is a completely good, I, I mean you can watch a video of him in the 1970s when he was on fire selling all those football stadiums and see him play guitar and watch him now and he's a way better guitar player now yeah and, you know he knows it and he goes well mick i I'm, I practice all the time. I, I pick the guitar up, and he goes, and, you know, I, I said, well, yeah, but some guys have a style that you can't shake. And I said, you've actually, you know, turned it into a, a really great style. You know, you're you're flawless now on the guitar. You know, he's it's just he's never short of something to say. He oh, never no. stumbles. It's fantastic. And his level of professionalism is, is really something. It was really good for me to play them because I've only been in doc, and I created a lot of bad habits. And... Uh, all of a sudden, you had to step up to the plate, and guess who you have to step up with? Ted Nugent pitching, you know? Yeah. So you really had to come a long way. And, boy, I mean, he cracked the whip on me a few times in the early, and I went up, you know, and I'm eager to please. And I thought, you know, I can do I can do all. And he goes, like, you know, of course you can. Come on. I just need you to be, you know, I thought, okay, this is a real game here, you know? So it was really good for me. He got a big kick out of seeing me come up, you know, for, uh, show up for the call, you know? Yeah. And, uh you just get the big kicking. You know, we always talk and stuff, and you'd always say, God, you know, my other band members, and they always wanted to undermine me, and they always had some secret behind my back, and I'm always like, 
nothing's going to get by me. The name of the band's Ted Nugent. I hear so. Yeah, let's have it out, you know. And uh, he gets a big gag out of me because I'm like a flag, you know. Here, hand me the flag, charge, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he just goes, where does this guy, he tells my friends, where did this guy come from? I've never met anybody with the energy level like he's got that wants, that's so positive that wants to back me up. You know, and he really gets a big kick out of it. I, yeah. I mean, you guys, I mean, in a lot of ways seem to have a very similar personality, even. I mean, you, neither one of you ever well, seem to be I short of what to say. Only, I, you know, I'm, a, I told him, I'm the Ted Nugent all bands I've been in, you know. He goes, I bet you were. He goes, but, but then, you know, and it, you'll never, but you'll never be here, you know. He always had alpha male, yeah, one bigger, you know. Yeah. You'll never get over the top on him. <laughs> He's just that kind of guy. Sure. It's something else. But um, I, I, we do have a lot of similar fellows. Yeah. You know, we want to do good. We want to do well. And, uh, He's got a great attitude. Yeah, I mean, it's a shame that there aren't more performers in. There certainly seems to be a, a void there to take those kind of guys, uh, you know, and carry that flag in 20 years from now. I mean, it's just kind of a national treasure. To, yeah. To see a guy. God, you know, I, I think about the guy, too, is, is not only his music, but his personality and what he does for family and people who need help. And like in these disasters, he, you know, he'll quietly go down and buy 300 cots and sleeping bags. And give them away, you know, to people that need it, you know, and send them to these things. And he's just, you know, I mean, what a person. <laughs> that's, that's quite a bit. He does, you know, for all the soldiers and all the policemen and stuff, the things he does for them, oh my God, they adore him, you know? Yeah. I mean, we rehearse these, uh, when we're rehearsing these guys from, uh, you know, Iraq that were, God, the legs are, you know, they don't have skin on them and stuff, they're watching us rehearse and, you know, I mean, they just, all they want to do is get more bullets and go back and fight, you know? And it's like, can you believe it? You know, so it's the little, little least I can do to let them watch our band play, you know? I'm like, oh, you're quite a guy, Ted. It's really something. Yeah. It's, it's well, really, really, and a lot of people, you know, a lot of people get confused with his politics and his brash, his brashness and stuff. Um, I'm not going to say it's an act, but it, it comes, I mean, you know, it's definitely, if you knew him personally, it, it's only good, uh, believe me. He doesn't mean harm to anyone, and only would help. You know, he, he only wants right. You know. Yeah, certainly. He's on, he's on a conquest. I guess I don't know. Uh, what did, what does the new year have in store for you guys? I mean, you had mentioned doing another tour. Is there any uh, talk of doing a studio album, or is obviously things are a little bit open ended uh, with Dawkins? Ted's camp, there might be. I mean, I've heard mention of it before. Uh, a lot of times he'll just go. He'll call you. Hey, listen, next week, uh, I got, I just, you know, I mean, he won't, you know, I mean, he, it, it falls out of his mouth, but you never know when it's coming. Sure. Unfortunately, I missed the last Ted Nugent studio album. Uh, Dawkins was doing one as well. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, he comes on so fast, like, hey, can you do this come next week? Can you fly out and do this record? No, I can't. I'm in the middle of this Dawkins thing. Oh, okay. Well, you know, Ted don't wait. He's got guys who will play with him. So bam. Yeah. You know, and I, and I thought, oh, darn, I missed that, you know. So hopefully I'll make this, you know, if he's doing this next one, and I don't know when that will be, but I'd love to be part of that too. But sure. I'm so pleased to be part of that 6,000th uh, show, uh, Motor City Mayhem DVD. That oh, had, yeah. Uh, and I just went 6,000 shows. He goes, I, I go, how did you know? He goes, well, you know, he goes, you save those itineraries for keepsakes? And I said, yeah, I do. He goes, I have all mine. And he goes, <laughs> you can... You can you can add up the miles you've driven, uh, you know, uh, night by night because it has all that's every bit of information. You know how, how far the next drive is to the next place, how big the venue is, and he goes and I've been keeping track, you know, year by year, and 
you know, this, this, he goes, it's right around here somewhere in July. And he goes, I'm just going to do it on July 4th. And then I remember seeing that on the, you know, I mean, just thinking about that as a 6,000 show. That's incredible. And then yeah. I, I was watching like VH1 behind the music or something. They were talking about, my, I don't, I think it was Def Leppard or something. This band has done an incredible 1,372 show. I'm like, oh, poofy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, like, oh, wow. <laughs> Call me, call me another five brand there, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, Mick, and obviously, it's amazing how much... Go ahead. Obviously, Dawkins got the... You guys just redid the Greatest Hits album. Is that Those are actually re, uh, new recordings? You know what? Um, the latest is... Um, wait a minute, I'm confused. <laughs> uh, I, th- I think we were doing that, and I don't think it ever got finished. Okay. Or it's coming. I, I, I'm, the last one was Lightning Strikes Again, I think, and that, that was just that was just studio stuff. But we had, yeah, we have done. Oh no, oh no, excuse me. <laughs> You're right. Well, that's terrible. But you can't even keep track of it, huh? <laughs> yeah, I think we did that. Yes, we did that. We re-recorded the old. Right. Thank you for reminding me. Hello. No problem. And uh, we also did some songs Don, that Don and I enjoyed from the '60s, like. Uh, uh, a song called Lies that I ended up singing uh, by the Knickerbockers, which was a big oh, okay. deal sounding like hit for them. And um, I forget, oh, Bus Stop by the Hollies, we did that. And just some things that we wanted to do. Cool. You know? All right, so For the no... interesting people who might, you know, know those songs. <laughs> anyway, God, I'm so glad you reminded me. I'm like, I don't know what he's talking about, crazy. Because <laughs> I'm thinking we have so many greatest hits out there. I don't yeah. Know which yeah, I mean there are there are no shortage of 20th century masters and things like that uh, with with your name on it and there's like the Alive album and stuff like that. So, well, you know the uh, this, the reason for that this latest one was uh, um, after 25 years, I mean they're up for they're up for grabs again those songs. Mm-hmm. So if you record them, you get to own them again. So we said, well, let's record all the singles that we did, you know, and mm-hmm. stuff, and pretty much grab a handful of that, you know. Yeah. And uh, then I noticed that Journey had done that. A lot. I thought, oh, you know, you know what? If that's what's going on, it must be that that time period right now where all these bands are collecting up their old stuff and saying, no, we're going to hang on to this. You know, we're going to put yeah. out again, re-release it, and own it all. So that's you know, you'll probably be seeing more of that. Yeah, I mean, which is I I can certainly understand why they do that. I mean, that way you're not giving huge chunks of it back to the record labels and stuff. Yeah, and if you get a chance to have a career that long, and and you know, a lot of people. I mean, listen, I got to tell you. A lot of our fans don't know about our records in the '90s, and which I think was Dawkins' really create most creative period when we were really more of the band that you know. Mm-hmm. Well, I can't say that we you know really were, but I mean it was. I think some of our greatest recordings came later, and you know, I haven't put a record on the wall, a gold record on the wall since the '80s, you know. Right. And uh, there's a lot of fans that don't know. So even even to this day, we only play when we play live. We only play the songs that. We're identifiable to those people, and you know, we'll, we'll throw some things in. I want to hear the what, what, what the hell song was that? We go, that's off this record. What record's that? You know, well, we have nine more that you don't know about. You know, yeah, <laughs> you're throwing people off with some stuff from Erasmus Slate or something like that. I can certainly, yeah, you know, um, I mean, you know, a lot of our fans that are close to us have those. There's a couple of ones that they're not, they don't. Well, the, the, I mean, literally, the ones that are, people are coming to see us now, pretty much. Are your <laughs> your last handful of fans that have it all? So, mm-hmm. but there are a lot. That, but that's what I'm saying is those millions of people who used to buy your records in the '80s don't know that there's you know, yeah. a bunch of other documents. It's amazing how they fall off. Of, like when you like the, an artist, 
you like them because you like them, right? I mean, mm. I, that's how my, in my era it grew. You know, I mean, I like Neil Young because I like Neil Young. If you put something out tomorrow, I'd probably like that. You know, go check. You know what I'm saying? You like someone's style, and uh, or ACD, you know, whatever. But I mean, that '80s period became that. You know, you're hot on Monday. You know, I mean, flipping a burger on Monday and a star on Friday, and you're done the next Monday. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, you know. What happens is your fans grow up, they realize, oh, i got to get married, and I need a, you know, uh, my kids need shoes, not a new docking record. You know? Yeah, and, well, uh, I can assure you my kids are listening to the docking records. <laughs> I'm guilty. Uh, right. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> well, God bless you. <laughs> yeah, I'm that guy in Pennsylvania that keeps buying. The, the only of of the whole band's catalog I, I think that I, I bought and, and kind of regretted was probably Smoke This, but that that was George's. I don't know, experimental period. Oh, yeah, period. George kind of thing, yeah. That yeah. Part pretty much was only involved in those first two Lynch Mob records. I thought were, I thought was a real oh. good chance for that band to do something. And, and it was starting, it was getting a lot, I mean, Wicked Sensation is just such the musicians recognize, still to this day, you guys call that record, which was kind of like what Under Lock and Key was at its time. I remember so many bands went, this production on here is, is, all the bands used to take it into the studio and say, we want to sound like this, you know? Mm. And I, I, I thought, wow, what a compliment from your peers and things. But, um, you know, and then after I split the lynch mob, uh, that thing kind of fell apart. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, George went on to do, he started going all over the map, rap records and this one. And, mm. uh, I really didn't keep track from that point either, so I'm guilty of yeah. know, not following it. Hey, well, Nick, them. I think I've taken up probably enough of your time today, but I really want to thank you for coming on the show. It's been a, it's well, been a blast. Well, my pleasure. I'm so glad you got in touch with me, and uh, you know, th- I really appreciate your time and uh, being able to talk about that. Thank you so uh, much. Sure. Mentioned 6,000th concert by Ted Nugent. That was Ted Nugent, Wild McBrown on drums there. So uh, that was Stormtrooping. So you can get that on Amazon, iTunes, all the good uh, places to get digital downloads. You can get that entire concert. It's also available on a DVD, so certainly worth checking out. So if the uh, drummer of Dokken and, and uh, Ted Nugent wasn't enough, I now would like to welcome to the show the reality TV star of late from Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp. And the man who played bass for not only Ozzy Osbourne, Ronnie James Dio, Quiet Riot, White Snake, Ingve Malmsteen, and Blue Oyster Cult, Rudy Sarzo. So to get you in the mood, this is some of Rudy's accomplishments.
Ladies and gentlemen, with great pleasure and a great honor, uh, Rudy Sarzo joining us on the show today. How are you doing today, Rudy? I'm doing outstanding, John. How are you doing? Not too bad. Uh, it's a little bit warmer where you're at. We're in Pittsburgh and uh, oh, yeah. shoveling yeah. out from some snow. <laughs> and, and you're out in Los Angeles right now? Yes, sir. And, uh, yeah, it's quite, quite a beautiful day out here. We're yeah. very blessed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're not so blessed. I mean, we might have some good sports teams, but we've got some lousy weather this time of year. Uh, well, think, think of all the great landscapes you're going to have in the springtime. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. We'll get the fall foliage and stuff, too. That's right, yeah. Um, I just kind of want to talk a little bit about your career and uh, the book that you've written on uh, your time with Randy Rhodes. Um, can we talk a little bit about how you came to be in, in Ozzy Osbourne's band? Well, actually, I was... Um the book is not just about Randy with Ozzy. It's also about Randy Rhodes well, during the choir riot uh, sure. days, you know, back in Los Angeles. And uh, I, I am the only musician that has ever get, uh, that did get to play with Randy in both choir riot mm-hmm. and, and Ozzy. So I was, uh, I got to witness his metamorphosis from just being the local guitar player in LA, very respected, and also a teacher to Randy becoming the legendary guitar player that sure. he has, uh, that, that he became. Uh, and so the book focuses on that. Uh, and that's how I got to play with Ozzy because I, I, I you know, when, when it came time that they were looking for a new rhythm section, they, they got Tommy Aldridge and, but they were still looking for a bass player. So Randy recommended me, you know. Had you played with Randy in Quiet Ride prior to Ozzy then? Is that yes. kind of the yes. time? Okay. I just want yes. to make sure I had that right, because I know you were yes. in Quiet Riot kind of after Ozzy as well. Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We always, uh, the guys in the band, you know, Carlos and, and Frankie and, and Kevin, you know, rest in peace, we used to refer to that as the mental health Quiet mm-hmm. Riot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just to differentiate. You know. Sure. So how did you come to meet uh, Randy? Was it through being in Quiet Riot, or had you known him before that? No. I was, uh, I had just moved to Los Angeles, and I was... Uh, and I auditioned for the band, and I, I got the gig, and we started playing together. But uh, I really didn't get to know him as well into, until I started teaching at his mom's school, Usonia, okay. uh, in North Hollywood. So I really got to see the other side of Randy Rose that very few people, unless you were a student of his, got to see, which was Randy Rose as a teacher. And to me, that's, you know, when people ask me what's my, my most Precious memory of Randy Rhodes. Uh, it's, I would say him sharing his knowledge and his passion for music with others. Mm-hmm. And if if you ever take a look at a photo of Randy on stage, just take a, a, a notice how he holds the guitar. Mm-hmm. And he was basically giving the first uh, twenty rows a guitar lesson right sure. there because he was always. I, I I maybe it's just it was something that was natural for him to hold the guitar because he spent so much time teaching. He would teach like for eight, ten hours a day. Mm-hmm. But he had he had that many students. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was. I mean, and, and to this day, I mean, it's been twenty odd years uh, since his passing, and still people are still dissecting uh, and and worship. Well, yeah, it's going to be in a couple of years. It's going to be thirty. Wow. Yeah. It's hard to imagine that much time has gone past. Uh, you know, and it's. It was such a, a blessing, and I'm sure you were you were truly blessed to get a chance to play with oh, him. Oh, absolutely, so. absolutely, yeah, yeah. To, yeah, to, yeah. Not only to play, but also, you know, you know, you you really don't get to, don't get to know a person until you spend you know a couple of tours in a in a bus. With yeah, them. yeah. 
and it, it seemed like he had a genuine, genuine love of learning as well. I mean, a lot of you read accounts. That, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's. I mean, for all uh, for uh, you know, most of the people that uh, that know enough about Randy Rhodes, that uh, there's you know, there's a common knowledge that he had given uh, Ozzy and Sharon mm-hmm. uh, notice notice that he wanted to go back to school and right. get his degree in music, so he was going to take some time off from the band to pursue that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, now after his passing, you stayed on with Ozzy. Did you finish that tour? I know you you were yes, on. This, you were I, played I, on the record with Brad Gillis, the uh, Speak of the Devil record. Speak of the Devil. Also, there's a uh, there's a, uh, a video it's called Speak of the Devil. Also, okay. Uh, that was actually the Diary of the Madden tour. Okay. That, uh, but it, it was basically the same set, same production, minus you know. Mm-hmm. Randy was no longer with us. By yeah. then. Wow. Now, after uh, Diary, did you? When was that? The last tour you did with them before you went back to the kind of Metal Health Quiet Riot yeah. lineup? Oh, the actually the Metal Health Quiet Riot. Yeah, the, my my last performance with uh, with Ozzy was the recording of uh, Speak of the Devil. Okay. Yeah, which I have to admit that was actually my the, first, uh, first Ozzy the, Osbourne record, so it was kind of yeah. a great introduction to the band. Yeah, that was that was an interesting uh, project because uh, that was basically sprung upon us, and we had maybe five days to rehearse it as a band mm-hmm. to learn songs that we were not familiar with, and uh, that was you know we did that uh, over the period of two nights at a place called the Ritz in New York. Okay, kind of like a like a large showcase club. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was it was pretty interesting because there was no overdubs. Live without a net. Yeah, but you know, we were warned, you know, Sharon was always really, really good about letting us know what was going on. And she said, Listen guys, you know, you better know your song very well because there's not gonna be any overdubs to this. <laughs> which is which is I guess kind of refreshing for a live album. I mean, you you almost don't think of a of an untouched live album, so that's that's actually makes it kind of cool. Yeah, um, that is that is what you what you hear is what happened that night. <laughs> now you also played on the the tribute album as well, correct? Yes, that's another one that was not fixed. Okay. Uh, yeah, it, uh, yeah. Again, you know, as a matter of fact, that the record was released after I was out of the band. And I was already, uh, you know, had gone out, uh, gone on to play with uh, with, uh, with Quiet Riot. Okay. So, uh, so it definitely, there was no going back, and you know, I, w- I wasn't even in the band. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which I guess it's it's a, you know, not to get on editorial, but it's good that the Ozzy Osbourne camp didn't take you off the record, so that's good. Oh no, yeah. no, yes, yeah. I've never had any a, such, you know, uh, you know, circumstances with that. Sure. Sure, yeah, and, and I have to admit, I mean, from a from a fan's perspective, the the production on the first two albums I thought kind of paled in comparison to Tribute. Tribute to me was, I think, a much better introduction as a fan to what Randy did than maybe the studio album. So it was. Yeah, but you know, you have to take into consideration. You know, uh, Randy was he treated everything as a work in progress. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, I, you know, one of the things that I learned from, you know. Being around him, and I say being around him because that will encompass just on stage and on stage, you know. Mm-hmm. And is uh, he he treated life kind of like uh, with thought of how can I make this better on a sure. daily basis, you know. So he evolved basically into a, that's to a point 
that one of the reasons why he wanted to go back to school and take some time off was because he found himself boxed in into playing the same songs over and over and over again every uh, single day, you know, yeah. for, for almost nonstop uh, two, three years. Yeah, and that's that's got to be tiring, I suppose. You know, also wonder how he, you know, he probably got tired of playing Crazy Train every night. So, yeah, so certainly can. You know, yeah, no matter how much you improve upon it, there's only so much you can do with it. Yeah. Now, obviously, from Ozzy, um, you were playing in front of some decent crowds, but did that even prepare you remotely for what mental health became? Well, by the time we uh, with with uh, with Blizzard Boss, that was more of a uh, introductory period mm-hmm. to people just didn't know what to expect when when they watched the you know when they came in to, to see the band, and there was no internet uh, social networking available mm-hmm. in those. So it was all, whatever, whatever, uh, it was all based on word of mouth, you know, mm-hmm. the, you know, that the band was able to, to, to create a following. Uh, but we, we went out there with Diary of a Madman. I would say it was all pretty much sold out every single night. Okay. So, so yeah. So actually when I went back with Quiet Riot was kind of like, uh, starting all over again, mm-hmm. you know, taking, taking that journey. And to me, that, that's the most, you know, uh, memorable parts of of, uh, of being on tour with a band is the journey to the top. Right. And let me tell you something. After doing it with Ozzy, I did it with Quiet Riot, and then in the U.S. Mm-hmm. with White Snake, because you yeah. know White Snake White Snake w- w- was big. And by the time I joined the band, you know, it, 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 they were huge in Europe and Japan, mm-hmm. South America, and so on. Yeah. But but the uh, the U.S. market still was untapped. Yeah, for, for Weissnick. So we had to start from you know from opening up for for Motley Crue and you know carrying on and and trying you know making that impact. Yeah, and uh, you know to be honest, you know when, when you go from the bottom to the top, the landscape is pretty much the same when you make that journey. Right. So as I as we started you know heading towards the top with Quiet Riot, I was very familiar, you know, mm-hmm. with what was coming up. So. Yeah, it was very, very rewarding to see that unfolding again in front of my eyes. Yeah, I think you bring up a good point about social networking because a lot of us, and I remember being one of those, you know, Quiet Riot wasn't even on our radar until Come On, Feel the Noise launched into MTV. And not only did it launch, it was like every 40 minutes we were watching you guys. Oh, absolutely. And it, it, you know, I think you and Def Leppard kind of sort of hit that mark very similar times with two, you know, what became quintessential albums of that era. Yeah. And you couldn't go anywhere without hearing it, you know, and it was... Yeah, yeah. But, you know, to me, the the, the most significant memory I have out of the whole thing was actually being in the company of not only Def Leppard, but in the top three mm-hmm. with uh, with, with uh, Michael Jackson's thriller and synchronicity. We were, we were at number two for six weeks before we actually went to number one on Billboard charts yeah. in November. So, uh, and again, it was because we went to number one. It's just to be in such incredible company of, you know, artists that I respected and admired, you know. Yeah, you couldn't get much bigger. I mean, obviously, Michael Jackson, but even the police in that era were, were phenomenal. I mean, synchronicity was as, about as big as it got in the 80s. So, yeah, you were in yeah. some elite company then, so, you know. I don't think a lot of uh, music fans now can necessarily appreciate that because we don't see that kind of staggering amount of sales. Oh, yeah. You know, to go to number one, at that time, you had to sell, sell, not just mm. ship, but sell a million copies in a week. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah. unless you're going to get into hip hop, that's not going to happen now, or you know. Yeah, I, I I I can't recall anybody in in recent years selling a million copies. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, even after a year or so, selling a million copies. But um, no, the the project with the White Snake, obviously, things had kind of deteriorated a little bit with uh with a quiet riot. But I mean, White Snake, and again, being in the U.S. market, uh, you guys were really not on our radar. And then here comes what it appears to be like an all-star team and musicians with, you know, the voice of God on vocals and two yeah. incredible guitarists. Um, how did how did you get approached to, to do the White Snake Project? Uh, I think it was very simple. I, uh, White Snake was the opening act in 1984 for Quiet Riot's Condition Critical Tour. Okay. And, and I got to uh, not only meet David, but also see what was going on behind, you know, Mm-hmm. Behind the scene, basically, I, 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 you know, and I left Quiet Riot right after that tour, and I was asked by David to join the band mm-hmm. right there, right there and then, which would have put me into going into the studio to record the '87 album, which mm-hmm. is what became the '87 record. But I declined at that time because I knew of the of the tensions going on between. Dave Coverdale and John Sykes. I knew what was going on behind. Sure. Me. Just want to leave one bad situation for another. Mm-hmm. So, so two years later, I, uh, Tommy Aldrich and I got the invitation once again to join uh, White Snake. And uh, by then, John Sykes was not there. And mm-hmm. it's not because of John Sykes personally. It was just because of the tension between those two. Sure. You know? Yeah. And, and uh, by then, I we felt, of course, you know, was safe. <laughs> you know, to yeah. Join the band. And that's how, like, uh, we got, uh, you know, invited to uh, to join. Yeah, I mean, that was, uh, it was kind of odd, because I remember getting the 87 album shortly after, um, I think it was Still the Night was the first single, I, if my memory is correct. And it was, yeah, the first video. Yeah. yeah, I remember looking at, you know, I was a person who always absorbed the liner notes. I'm like, none of these people are in this band. You know, I'm looking. Well, you yeah, know, except that Adrian Vandenberg got to play the solo on Eureka. Uh, yeah, exactly. But I was like, you know, because it, it wasn't a band of nobodies. I mean, he, like I said, he had almost a super group there behind him. Uh, and you guys carried that on for, uh, even with the Slip of the Tongue album, adding Steve Vai into the mix just to kick it up a notch, I guess to say. So uh, those were, were great times for rock. And, and you know, Whitesnake was about as big as it got in that period of time. I mean, Whitesnake and Motley Crue. Um, so after... After White Snake, obviously the, David kind of put the band on hiatus, and, and you had done some work with Quiet Riot, and then I see you also had done some work with Ingve Malmsteen. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Let me give you the chronology of it as far as uh, me personally. Uh, Ninety, uh, the beginning of of the nineteen ninety tour, I would say the second day of the tour, David announced that he wanted to take some time off, mm-hmm. and so that gave us plenty of time for us to decide what to do. You know, while, you know, I'm seeing the band coming to an end, you know, Whitesnake. And, uh, so I put together a group. So by the end of that tour, I, I entered rehearsals with, uh, with a band called Sun King. Okay. And, uh, we got signed to Giant Records. And that was kind of like right before grunge hit. Yeah. And, and what we were doing was basically a continuation of what was happening at the time. Things that I know how to do, you know, arena mm-hmm. rock. Yeah. Arena rock type band, right? And but one of the uh, what one of the best things out of it was that I got to play with with uh, John Five. 
Okay. John yeah. Bauer, you know, he was yeah. 19 years old. He was 19 years old and a phenomenal guitar player even then. You know. And uh, a lot of people don't know that he's actually a shredder. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. He's a man of many, many, many talents, John Bauer. Because uh, people know him as a guitar player for Rob Zombie and, uh, and, uh, and Marilyn Manson. That's how he got his name, John Bauer. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they 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 might not know that he can actually play any you know uh, it's Steve Vai type you know shredding you know yeah he was actually with David Lee Roth at some point wasn't he was he? yeah yeah he did some writing with David yeah. Lee Roth but he was actually with Rob Halford in a band too okay yeah right you know one of those projects that Rob Halford does uh, mm-hmm. outside of Judas Priest sure. but uh, so. That was great. I got to play with him. Then after, you know, uh, in 97, I reunited with, uh, with Metal Health version of Quiet Riot. And we went on, we existed until 2003. Mm-hmm. A few months later, after the band broke up, I, I joined Inve Momstein's tour mm-hmm. for Attack. And then, but, oh yeah, but in 1994, I went back out with White Snake again. And okay. The, Remaining member from that from that configuration from the '87 and Slip of the Tongue was actually Adrian Vandenberg. So it was Adrian Vandenberg, David Coverdale, yes. uh, Danny Carmasi, which was the drummer in Heart. Okay. Uh, and uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, the uh, uh, Warren the Martini. From, okay. From R- R- yeah, 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 he played uh, guitar with us on tour. Oh, that would have been neat to see that. Yeah, yeah, and then also in 2004, I did a tour with Inve Malmsteen, and then I got called to do to join Dio in the middle of the Inve tour, which of course I couldn't leave because I was committed to that tour. Sure. So I they went in and recorded Master of the Moon with Jeff Pilson. Okay. And then after I completed my commitments with Inve, I joined Dio. Yeah. In 2000, 2004. Which actually uh, took me up to a couple of years later when when Ronnie rejoined with the Black Sabbath guys, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Benny Apice and Tony Iommi and Geezer Butler, and they called it Heaven and Hell. Sure. Which which gave me opportunity to start playing with Beloit's Occult. Okay. And then so I've been I have been up until this year when Ronnie passed away in May. Mm-hmm. And that's another story. Yeah. Uh, I have been a member of Dio, and also when you know, and and and, and a touring member of uh, Blue Oyster Cult. Yeah. Just just round the resume out. So you've performed with Ozzy, Dio, David Coverdale, Ingve. I mean, yeah. I mean, there's no shortage of of incredible people you've worked with, which is yeah, it's amazing. Very you know, and in between, I, I got to play with another incredible musician. I mean, to call him a shredder would be really underestimate, you know, his, his genius. It's uh, Tony McAlpine. Oh, okay. Yeah, he was with uh, Steve Vai's band for a while. Yeah, yeah, I re- yeah. I remember uh, his albums back in the uh, 80s, and it was amazing because he would do an incredible guitar song and then an incredible piece on piano. And yeah, because like, actually uh, he was he, he's a trained, he's a concert pianist yeah. who actually fell in love with the guitars. As a matter of fact, his... Uh, his uh, his inspiration was uh, George Lynch. Wow. <laughs> whenever you whenever you listen to especially early McAlpine, he's just trying to capture George Lynch's uh, mojo, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> you know, 
But I mean, but Tony, so what Tony did, he, he took all his musical knowledge from being a concert pianist and adapted that to, to the guitar as an instrument, as, as, a, as, as a voice. And I, I'm telling you, of all the guys I've ever played with, you know, uh, as far as musical genius, a man who could play anything you throw at him, because I, 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 you know, he, uh, uh, when we worked on the album called Driver, mm-hmm. uh, Mars Project, that came out yeah. in Shrapnel, he was staying with me at the house, so yeah, you know, he would sit around the piano and just, just for, just for fun, I would throw at him any song, any style, and he would just play it. Yeah. Uh, it's a, I've never been in the company of, of an older musician like that. Yeah, and that's, and considering you're the company you've kept, that is saying quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say he is, he's the most, Oh, oh, to, to call him underrated is, is, is not to say enough about Tony McAlpine. Yeah. You know, he's, a, he's definitely, he's a, he's, he's a musical gift. Yeah. And you also did um, do some, you worked with uh, Ocean Visual Effects doing some, like, computer animation and things like that? Yeah, I do. Uh, I'm an animator. I mean, I'm, I'm a visual artist. I, my major in school was uh, film. Okay. I was a film major, and uh, I, I w- when I play, I approach things from a visual sense. I that's how I get into the songs. You mm-hmm. know, I just, I just, I get inside of the story of, of what the song is about, which sure. to me is the most important component. You know, you can be as epic, you know, with a acoustic guitar, and and if you have a really well written visual song, if the lyrics take you somewhere else, then that to me it's it's the ultimate experience of sharing mm. a story. You know. Yeah. And also, I mean, we have to add now reality T V show star for your work on the Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp, which was uh well, Yeah, I mean I I would consider a star because, you know, we're just basically what they did is they, they brought in the cameras and show what Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp has been about for the last 14 years, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah, they, they focus on the three of the counselors, you know, uh, Kip Winger, Mark Hudson, and myself. Uh, but the stars are really the participants, you know, the, the campers. Yeah. You know, you know, those to me are, uh, you know, and they all have such interesting stories, and it's just a matter of uh, taking five strangers and, and quickly, you know, within a matter of five days, uh, turning them into, in, into a band. You yeah. know, which is uh, it's, it's it's challenging not only when the cameras are rolling, but also it's very challenging and fulfilling when we do the the, the regular camps. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine it. Uh, it looked like an extremely good time. And last, obviously, I mentioned a little bit earlier, but uh, you've also got a book out. Uh, you've had it out for. You started in what '06 with the uh, writing off the rails. No, the, actually, it it, it 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 was available through. Uh, Amazon, only Amazon, you know, like, uh, I, I was doing a self-published thing because, uh, certain things came, uh, I, I, I had, I originally had a publisher mm-hmm. and, uh, certain things out of my control happened and, uh, we were dropped, uh, you know, I was dropped. Okay. Because of certain conflict of interest with, with other people. Mm-hmm. And then, um, I, you know, just because, you know, people on the, all, all over the internet, they were saying, oh, you know, this book doesn't exist, blah, 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 it never happened. So, I became aware of Book Search, which is one of those self-publishing uh, mm-hmm. divi- divisions of Amazon. Then I, you know, I did the book about, yeah, I finished it, 
by myself, you know. Okay. I, I did the layout, I did everything, the cover, and then I, I just made it available to any, any interested parties through a book search. And then a, an actual publisher uh, contacted me and said, I want to release it. I said, you know, so then it went back. They, then we actually did the proper treatment of the book. Okay. You know, proper layout and added some photos from Ross Halfin's collection to okay. it. And, and now it's available everywhere. You can go to a store and just, uh, you know, order it, buy it, or, you know, or order it. The, the only place to get it, uh, autograph is through my website, which is yeah. actually has a direct link to the publisher. Yeah, which I'm actually looking at right now, RudySarzo.com, and uh, click the off the rails link, if, you know, for uh, 23 bucks, which is probably what you'd spend in a store on it. And you get an autograph copy from the man who was there. So. Yeah, I think that they're running some kind of a, uh, a special sale for Christmas or something like that. Oh, there you go. So you can get one for all your loved ones. I have to get myself a copy of that as well. Rudy, I do want to thank you. I know you've got uh, a million things going on, and I don't want to take up any more of your time, but I want to thank you for coming on the show. It's my pleasure, John. Thank, thank you so much. Thank, thank you. Rudy Sarzo on bass, the great Tony Iommi on guitar, and Simon Wright. That is taken from an album called We Wish You a Metal Xmas and a Headbanging New Year. You can find that on Amazon. It's on Armory Records. Uh, great. I actually waited till this year to buy it. It came with another four extra tracks, including Doro and Michael Schenker, Girl School, uh, and some other great songs. So if you're a fan of, uh, of heavy metal, that is a great Christmas album to have. Uh, and also great to hear Ronnie uh, really killing it on that track. Before that, from the album Slip of the Tongue from Whitesnake, Full for Your Loving. So uh, to say Rudy has had uh, quite a great career, uh, understatement. So I want to thank Wild McBrown and Rudy Sarza for coming on the show. We invite you to check out our website at www.ironcityrocks.com. There is still some time left to vote for our 2010 Pittsburgh Music Awards. Uh, there's categories for best musicians, albums, songs of different genres, and the first ever Hall of Fame class for 2010. So we invite you to check that out. Uh, we will be back once again before the new year. We've got one more episode left. We'll be featuring current Deep Purple guitarist Dixie Dregs, uh, founding member, a former member of Kansas, Steve Morris. So. If you've ever played guitar, there's a name that you may or may not be familiar with, but you certainly should be familiar with. Also on the show, we'll have Jesse James Dupree of the band Jackal. So just kind of cleaning up some odds and ends for the uh, end of the year, and then we'll start fresh in 2011 with a clean slate. We hope you enjoyed the show, and we'll talk to you next time. <laughs>